welcome everyone to this evening's meeting with the Aristotelian Society. Um, just a reminder, first of all, that our next meeting will be in one week's time rather than two weeks, so we're avoiding the bank holiday. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Ian Phillips. Ian's lecturer in philosophy at University College London. Um, he's um, formerly um, fellow by examination at All Souls College. And um, Ian's written a number of articles on philosophy of mind and cognitive science, one of which was awarded the William James Prize for contribution to um, scientific studies and consciousness. And the title of Ian's paper today is Perceiving the Passing of Time. Thanks very much. Hey, thank you, Matt, and uh, thank you all for, for coming, especially those who've just handed in essays. Uh, it's a great way to celebrate. So today I want to talk about uh, the perception of duration. And what I mean by that is the fact that we don't just perceive events, we in some sense perceive how long they last. So imagine listening to the singer, you hear the notes she sings, but also you hear how long she sustains them for. And what I want to do today is to first introduce what I think is a very intuitive idea we might have about the structure of temporal awareness in general, and duration perception in particular, and then um, consider a challenge that that uh, intuitive picture faces. So the first thing I'll do is introduce the, the challenge, the, the picture, the, the naive view, I'm going to call it, and then I'll introduce the challenge it faces, which um, arises from cases where our perception of duration is dramatically distorted, particularly cases of, of trauma. Um, and what I'm going to suggest is that the challenge only really uh, uh, bites against the naive view on a certain assumption about the way in which we perceive duration. So I'm going to suggest the naive view can respond to, to the challenge by rejecting that assumption. And what I'm going to do for most of the rest of the paper is develop an alternative picture uh, of the way in which we perceive duration. And I'll argue that on that alternative picture we can explain what's going on in uh, the dramatic distortions of perceived duration in these cases of trauma, um, and I'll also suggest some empirical connections that we might make with that picture. Okay, so what's the, the naive view? Well, it has two components, and the first component of the view is just the claim we began with, the claim that we are perceptually aware of the durations of events in our environment. As John Foster nicely puts it, duration and change through time seem to be presented to us with the same phenomenal immediacy as homogeneity and variation of colour. Now, it's commonly observed that time perception is a special case of perception. So if you're uh, seeing your red round tomato or listening to a loud high-pitched sound, there's no inclination to think that your experience itself in those cases is red and round or loud and high-pitched. Experience itself, at least in its subjective aspect, doesn't have shape and colour properties, is in itself uh, uh, something that has a pitch or volume. But experience does manifestly have temporal properties. It consists in events or processes which occur before and after one another and persist through time for certain durations. So that raises a question which kind of arises perhaps uniquely in the temporal case, namely, what's the relationship between the temporal qualities presented to us and the temporal qualities of our perceptual experience itself. And a traditional, if 
much maligned answer to that question is voiced here by Helmholtz in a passage that James quotes, says is extremely natural and then rejects as far too crude. This is what Helmholtz says. It's the only case in which our perceptions can truly correspond with outer reality is that of the time succession of phenomena. Events, like our perceptions of them, take place in time so that the time relations of the latter can furnish a true copy of those of the former. So in the case of duration, the idea here would be that um, when you perceive some event as having a certain duration, then our experience itself can furnish a true copy of that event's duration by itself persisting for a matching amount of time. And that idea, I think, is very intuitive if we reflect upon our experience. So imagine the singer sustaining a, a, a long note, and then ask yourself, well, how long did my experience itself of that event last? And the natural answer is, well, my experience itself lasted just so long as the note was presented uh, as lasting for. Now, if that's right, then we can add a second claim to the naive view. In addition to the realist thought that we perceive durations, a claim we can call matching. It's the claim that whenever our experience apparently presents us with an event with a certain duration, our experience itself persists for a matching amount of time. And in fact, as it happens, John Foster is also one of the few defenders of this principle. Foster says, we have to take experience to extend over a period of real time in a way which exactly matches the phenomenal period it presents. Okay, so that's the naive view, realism plus matching. And now I want to consider the, the challenge that that uh, view faces. Okay, so victims of car crashes, um, pilots who've been forced to eject from their planes, climbers who've had serious... Uh, falls, survivors of those kinds of traumatic incidents reliably report that the events that they experienced seem to last much longer than events of the same objective duration would normally seem to last. So time seemed to slow down for them, as they put it. Now, why might such cases seem to be a problem for the naive view? Well, it's natural to think that what's going on in these cases is that a short-lived event so imagine you're a climber, you fall from a ledge and hit the ground a second later, so your fall is an event that lasts one second. It's natural to think that in reporting that view, that event to have lasted a dramatic amount of time, for time to have slowed down for you, that you're reporting an event which in fact lasts one second as being misperceived as lasting many more seconds. So let's just say 10 seconds. Okay, so far, nothing problematic, you might think. Well, but Let's introduce the matching claim said that whenever we have an event that has an apparent duration, then our experience itself must last for that amount of time. Well, if we're misperceiving the fall as lasting 10 seconds, then our experience itself must last 10 seconds by that principle. And that's not incoherent. There's no incoherence about having a 10-second long experience um, that happens to be a misperception of a one-second long event. But in this case, it's surely not plausible. It's not plausible that after the climber has hit the ground, for nine more seconds, their experience carries on going. OK, you can imagine that there are some strange cases where something like that might happen. But in general, that's not a plausible commitment 
for a view to have. We normally think that the climber can be rendered unconscious pretty much when they hit the ground and still accurately report what uh, they do. Okay, so if the naive theorist is forced to deny that our experiences in these cases run roughly concurrently with the events their perceptions of, then they don't have an account of these distortions and the view should be rejected. Okay, so how might the, the knife theorists respond to, to this argument? Well, one thing they might do is to question subjects' reports, to say subjects don't really experience as they report themselves experiencing. It's just a trick of the memory. And that's actually a surprisingly common suggestion in the empirical literature. So in a well-known paper by Stetson, Fiesta, and Eagleman, um, which they drop subjects from a, a platform uh, and see whether they experience time dilation. Uh, they argue that um, the reports of subjects at the events did indeed seem to take longer than their witnessing of, a, of someone else falling uh, is actually just a function of recollection and not a function of perception. And uh, Rani Gallistel endorses a much more general anti-realist view, or suggests one, when he argues that duration is not itself a sensible aspect of events, but exists only in recollection. So the naive theorist, could they go one of these two ways? These views certainly need taking seriously, I think, but um, the naive theorist is hardly likely to adopt the anti-realist suggestion, since that would just be to give up the first component of their view. I suppose they could endorse the Eagleman suggestion, but in arguing for this claim, Eagleman assumes that for a, uh, an account of duration distortion to be a perceptual account, it will have to be that our perception of duration is a function, or the distortions of duration have to be a function of sensory resolution. And on the account that I'm going to suggest in what follows, there's going to be no uh, uh, such entailment. It will be a perceptual account, but it won't entail that there's any implication for sensory resolution. So um, I'm going to suggest that Eagleman's account is undermotivated, in effect. We can talk about that more if people are interested in questions. Okay, so another way that we might respond to this argument rather than going one of these two ways and questioning subjects' reports. Well, in setting up the case, just assumed that we perceive duration in a particular way, that subjects misperceived uh, certain events, certain periods, um, as lasting a certain number of seconds, so that they perceived uh, an event uh, with respect to a subject-independent metric, in particular in seconds. And you might well doubt that we did, in fact, perceive events in seconds or relative to any other such metric. So there's an, a, a possibility of objecting to this argument on that ground. And that's a possibility I want now to try and exploit. So one person who would object to that way of setting things up is uh, Christopher Peacock, who has argued that, um, quite generally, our perception of extensive magnitudes is unit-free. So he focuses primarily on the spatial case, and what he argues there is that uh, the unit-free nature of spatial perception is illustrated by the fact that when we see a table, say, we see the table to have a certain width, we do not see it as having a certain width in inches, say, as opposed to centimeters. And in more recent work, he, he uh, notes that he would extend this account to the temporal case. So he would agree, I take it, that we don't hear sounds as having durations in seconds as opposed to, say, Helex or Vedas. So because of the hegemony of seconds, I've had to reach for uh, ancient 
uh, Hebrew and Vedic time units, but the point still stands. Okay. So that's a purely negative point, I take it. And then the question is, well, what's Peacock's positive account of, of spatial perception and duration perception? What Peacock suggests is that we can get rid of uh, units from our content specifications by appealing to an ontology of distances in the spatial case such that there's just one distance which has both the measure of one inch and equally the measure of 2.54 centimeters. So when I see the table, I see it as having a width W. That's the content specification. W is uh, one of these distances from this ontology of distances he introduces. And W has equally the measure of N inches and 2.54 N centimeters. And in the temporal case, I take it, you make exactly the same kind of move. So we appeal to an ontology of durations such that there's just one duration, which has both the measure of one second and, uh, as I am led to believe by Wikipedia, the measure of 33 and a third Vedas. So the climber's fall is going to be experienced as having a duration D from this introduced ontology, which equally has the measure 10 seconds or 333 and a third Vedas. Is this going to help? Is this positive proposal going to help the knife theorist? Well, I think pretty clearly not. Okay, so for Peacock, perception remains absolute. The climber's experience represents his or her fall as having a duration D, and therefore in a unit-free way. No units are mentioned in the canonical specification of the content, but D still has the measure 10 seconds. So when you apply the matching hypothesis, presumably the, uh, the matching thesis is going to tell us that our experience itself has to last for a duration D, and that has the measure 10 seconds, and so all the same implausible consequences still follow. So it won't do just to deny that we perceive durations in seconds or relative to any other such unit. We need an alternative positive proposal to the one that people are giving us here. And that's what I want to try and develop in the rest of the paper. So the most kind of austere or minimal account we might give of the content of our temporal awareness, or awareness of duration, would hold that we're only ever aware of the ratios of durations of perceived events. So we're only aware of relative durations. And in the very simplest cases, I take it, those would be uh, the durations of presently perceived stimuli. So we might hear two sounds as having the very same duration as running concurrently. We might see in quick succession two flashes, one that we can see as uh, visibly lasting twice as long as, as the other. And then there's scope for extending the the particular um, approach here. So we might think there's a question about how far in time can two events be separated such that we can be genuinely said to perceive their relative duration of one against the other. We might think also that we could appeal to some kind of abstraction. So perhaps you can perceive an event as having a duration that's roughly the same as the average duration of the recent batch of the durations of stimuli. Okay, so there's, there's a, a starting point for, for thinking about an account of perception. Um, and that account, of course, is available both in the temporal case and also in the spatial case. So have a general account of our awareness of extensive magnitudes which held that they were all just relative. In exploring a, an account on which our perception of, of uh, size and distance um, is entirely relative, the psychologist Roger Shepard asked us to consider a, a thought experiment this is the 
Shepherd's thought experiment. Imagine a line segment that although it does have a definite physical length, is somehow presented in such a way as to prevent comparison of its visual extent with any reference extent. So it's just a, a lone line segment presented entirely in the absence of any comparison. Shepard suggests that on a picture of purely relative uh, content, although the line could presumably, he thinks, still appear to be extended under such hypothetical conditions, it's doubtful whether its extent could be appreciated as a uniquely defined psychological magnitude. Natural selection, he thinks, has favored nervous systems that are primarily attuned to what is out there in the external world, and what is out there is most easily and accurately determined by making comparisons. Okay, so without endorsing that idea that that's what would be the case if you had just had a single line presented to you in the spatial case, to consider the analogous temporal uh, thought experiment. So let's imagine a single event, a lone kind of click of the fingers, okay, that's presented with some definite object, that, sorry, that has some definite objective duration, but somehow presented so as to prevent comparison with any reference duration. So no other uh, perceptual stimulus has, uh, is presented that it can be compared with. Question, should we still conclude uh, in, the, in, the, in the way that Shepard suggested we should in the spatial case, that although the click perhaps can appear to have what Ward called protensity, it could not really be appreciated as having any duration proper, any duration as a uniquely defined psychological magnitude. Well, I think it's less clear in this case that we should conclude like that. So even without comparison with any other perceptual magnitude, with any other event or process in our environment that we perceive as having some duration, you might think there are still events that are going on in your conscious life that have temporal properties and in particular have durations that will be present for you to make comparison with. So they're going to remain as part of your conscious life the durations of events and processes which constitute your non-perceptual mental activity, your thinking, your imagining, your remembering, all of the things that go on in your mind that aren't just perceiving events out there in the world. Now, that activity is plausibly just an aspect of what it is to be uh, awake and conscious for us. And so trying to strip away all comparison magnitudes from the single click would be a way of rendering you unconscious. And so we can't really imagine doing it. In other words, part of the condition of waking consciousness for us is that there are available comparisons to uh, the, the lone click out there. Okay. So that suggests we can extend our kind of austere minimal account of the relative content of uh, duration perception by adding to the claim that we're aware of the ratios of durations of perceived events that we're also aware of the ratios of durations of perceived events to events or processes in our stream of non-perceptual consciousness. And the question I want to ask is now is whether this extended account has enough resources in it to offer some insight into the time distortions of trauma. Can it account for those cases? Can it explain what might be going on in them? And so offer a, a serious a conception of duration awareness that would fit with the naive view and resist the challenge. 
Hey, to, to begin that task, I want to turn to the anecdotal reports that subjects make who've come through these traumatic events. So in a well-known paper by Noyes and Clatty from the 70s, they interviewed a large number of subjects who'd been through traumatic events of one kind or another, mainly car crashes, but also uh, various other kinds of, of trauma. And of the subjects they interviewed who said that they believed at the time they were about to die, so the ones who'd been through the most extreme trauma, 78% of them reported alteration in the passage of time, almost without any exception, uh, a slowing down of time. So the events seemed to take place uh, over a very long period. Intriguingly, 68% of the same subject group reported an increase in the speed of their thoughts during the traumatic events. So you immediately see there's this interesting correlation between time slowing down and thoughts speeding up. And that correlation comes out really dramatically when you turn to the subject reports themselves. So here are a selection. Just read them out. So each of these subjects has been through a car crash or something like that. One subject. As the time in which everything happening seemed to slow down, my thoughts speeded up. Another. My mind speeded up. Time seemed drawn out. It seemed like five minutes before the car came to a stop when, in reality, it was only a matter of a few seconds. My mind was working rapidly and reviewed information from driver's education that might bear on what I should do to save myself. A third subject. My thinking processes increased at an incredible rapid rate so that my movements in relation to them seemed extremely slow. And finally, a subject who's kind of reporting the, the cliche of one's life flashing before one's eyes. I started seeing good and bad things in my life, scenes that flashed rapidly before my eyes like lantern slides shown in rapid succession. From the moment I saw the accident about to happen, it seemed like I waited forever for the impact. Now, in each of these cases, more or less explicitly, a real connection is being drawn between the speeding up of mental processes and time slowing down or the events in one's environment seeming to slow down. It suggests a uh, natural hypothesis, namely that we perceive environmental durations, the durations of events in our environment, in part relative to our non-perceptual mental activity, to our thinking, to our imagining, to our remembering, and so forth. So why does time seem to slow down? Well, it seems to slow down because an unusually large amount of that activity is occurring in a given period, such that the events, when measured with respect to that amount of activity, seem to take place over a long period. So let me now explain how that account can meet the, the challenge, the bare bones account can meet the challenge that uh, the naive view faces. So what we have in, in a traumatic incident like the rock climbers fall, right, is a one second event, the fall from the ledge. And that event is being perceived as unfolding over a period in which a great deal of mental activity is occurring much more activity than would normally occur during a one-second period. So that's why the, the fall is reported as lasting a, a long time or seeming drawn out because so much is going on in the mind of the faller. So how does a matching hypothesis, the matching thesis, uh, connect to the content of our experience in this case? Well, um, if, our, if the fall is perceived as taking place over a period of time which there's a great deal of mental activity taking place, then the experience itself, you must be aware of it, it as taking place 
over a period of time in which a great deal of mental activity is taking place. But that's, of course, quite consistent with the event, in fact, taking place over just one second, so long as it's a second during which a great deal of mental activity takes place. But that's just uh, exactly what's going on in these cases. That's what's causing, underlying the distortion of time, according to this picture. Okay, so there's no uh, obvious implausibility or bullet for the naive picture to bite. You might think at this point that if uh, amount or rate of mental activity is being proposed as our measure of how much time is passing, then the view couldn't accommodate variation in the speed of thought or mental activity itself. If that's our measure, how could it itself seem to, to vary? And yet, as Reed objects to Locke's account of duration perception, every man capable of reflection will be sensible that at one time his thoughts come slowly and heavily, and at another time have a much quicker and livelier motion. I think it's important to see that um, this isn't an objection to the present account. The present account isn't saying that mental activity is our only measure of the passage of time or of duration. The, the idea is that it's a measure of perceived duration. Okay, so it's naturally allied with an account on which the pace rate of our mental activity can be measured with respect to how much uh, environmental change is occurring. So we have a sense of how fast our thoughts come. We can have relative awareness of that between, no doubt, have a sense of uh, one particular episode of, of uh, uh, non-perceptual activity lasting uh, some proportion of, of another. We can also have a sense of the pace of our mental activity as measured by the amount of environmental change. So on that interdependent or doubly relative picture, there's a, a consequence. The consequence would be that you won't be from the inside able to tell the difference between a situation where um, your mind has been, your mental activity or non-perceptual mental activity has been dramatically speeded up relative to an environment that's staying exactly the same and a situation in which your mental activity is proceeding just as normal but one's local environmental environment has been slowed down so the processes in one local environment are going much more slowly than normal. In both those cases, you're going to have the same uh, sense of things going very slowly relative to your speed of thinking and your thinking going very fast relative to the world around you. And it's natural to compare um, accounts of size perception, which I don't mean to endorse, but just to um, suggest an analogy with, on which we perceive the sizes of objects around us relative to the sizes of our bodies. So we perceive uh, this microphone as being roughly eye height. Um, on those accounts, whatever problems they might face, they don't, it seems to me, face the objection that they can't allow for awareness of change in our body size, for us to f have a sense of our body being smaller or larger than usual. Rather, they should say we can be aware of our body size in relation to the sizes of things in our perceived environment. That kind of view obviously has a consequence for Alice here, namely that from her subjective perspective, um, and assuming she's not aware of growing pains or shrinking pains, as it were, she won't be able to tell whether it's her that's grown or her environment that's shrunk. Okay. In both cases, she's going to seem like uh, she's really big compared to the things around her, and the world around her is small relative to her body size. 
But neither of those two consequences in the bodily case nor the spatial case seem to me uh, particularly unintuitive. Indeed, they seem to be quite intuitive consequences. Um, we should accept. Okay. Okay, this point I want to just mention one other possible uh, counterexample that uh, has been discussed in the literature, um, a counterexample to the naive matching hypothesis. It's the so-called oddball effect. So what happens in this effect is that subjects are presented with stimuli um, uh, in succession. And these stimuli are, are almost all the same. So you get a series of black disks, for example, each presented for roughly a second uh, with gaps between. And then in the midst of that sequence of repeated stimuli, you get one that's unique in some dimension. So here a, a red one appears. That's the oddball. And the standard finding is that um, in order for subjects to uh, perceive the oddball as having the same uh, subjective duration as uh, the adjacent stimuli, um, it in fact needs to be presented only for a proportion of the length of the ones around it. So, for example, an 800 millisecond reg disk will be perceived as having the same duration as uh, black disks, which are each presented for just over a second. Now, the authors of the original uh, paper on this effect uh, think of this in terms of subjective temporal expansion. Suggests that whenever an observer has to detect and respond to an oddball stimulus like a red disk here, there will be subjective temporal expansion. Somehow the, uh, the oddball will be perceived as uh, uh, lasting longer than it in fact is. And picking up on that uh, suggestion, uh, Jeff Lee has argued that these cases provide potential counterexamples to um, a claim which is effectively uh, the naive matching claim I've articulated. It suggests they provide counterexamples provided that the dilation of subjective duration of the oddball is not accompanied by a corresponding dilation of the objective duration of the experience. And they suggest it would be very strange to hold that it must be the case that the subject's experience of the oddball is objectively longer than her experience of the other stimuli. If this were correct, the subject's experience of each of the stimuli that occur after the oddball would have to lag behind in order to fit in, um, to fit the longer experience of the oddball into the stream of consciousness. With enough oddballs, Lee suggests, we could make each experience lag behind its stimulus any amount we chose. Okay, that's last point maybe somewhat questionable given that if we have too many they won't be odd anymore but um, the basic thought is, is clear. So how can we respond to, to this objection? Well, there are two replies I think. One doesn't make any reference to mental activity at all. And that suggests that although the oddball is seen as a matter of merely relative perception as lasting significantly longer than the adjacent stimuli, um, there's no reason to think that shows that the oddball is in any way expanded. It might be that um, it's the adjacent non-oddball stimuli that are contracted, as it were. So our experiences of those are, in fact, shorter than the experiences of their objective presentation time. And that's the suggestion made uh, in a, a paper by Periadath and Eagleman. So there then would be a... Uh, a difference between the objective presentation time of some of the stimuli and 
our experiences of them, but um, not in a way that would lead to any challenge to, to naive matching because no fitting in problem would occur. With the oddball, you just have an experience that lasted exactly the same amount of time, perhaps, as the stimulus, in fact, did. So that's certainly one uh, uh, option. Another thought that you might have is that the oddball potentially boosts the amount of concurrent mental activity during the oddball's presentation. And it's relative to that increased amount of mental activity that the oddball's duration is perceived as expanded. So perhaps due to the oddball's novelty, or perhaps because it is a kind of a low-level threat signal. Um, uh, and if it is, we might relate it to the kinds of experiences that subjects are having in, in traumatic cases. That leads to a boost in the amount of mental activity that's going on during the period. And as a result, that explains why it's perceived as lasting longer than the other stimuli. Okay. And in a, a, a recent study by uh, Mark Whitman and colleagues, um, they've shown that the oddball effect doesn't, in fact, obtain for any old oddball. Um, it's particularly pronounced for looming stimuli, uh, which grow towards you, which are apparently uh, stimuli that are likely to stimulate uh, a fear-related system perceived as a threat. But the oddball effect doesn't, account, doesn't occur for, for receding stimuli. So there's some evidence that perhaps part of the effect might be accountable for in something like these terms. So what I want to do in the remainder of the paper is just draw some connections with, between the picture I've been articulating and empirical work on time perception. When one turns to the empirical work, there are two main strands. There's a body of dual task evidence, which is usually taken to, to support so-called attentional approaches to uh, time perception, duration perception. And I've talked about that elsewhere. What I want to do now is just to focus on evidence that's usually taken to support so-called internal clock models of uh, durational time perception. Okay, so at the simplest, um, here is what an internal clock model of time timing looks like. Suppose it's that each of us is equipped with some kind of pacemaker which produces pulses, perhaps regularly, perhaps randomly, and that these pulses get accumulated in some kind of store such that um, the perceived duration of some event is... Uh, an increasing function of the number of pulses that have been stored in the accumulator between the on and offset of the relevant stimulus. And if we were interested in, in metrical judgments, like that stimulus lasted a second or two, then we're going to have to appeal to um, some kind of reference memory, which represents for us uh, how many pulses we might expect for some standard duration like a second, such that... Um, uh, there can be a comparison between the number of pulses that have been stored in our store and the number of pulses associated with some reference duration like a second, and that will in turn lead to a judgment. And this basic model, and this is highly simplified, remains an incredibly popular model of uh, time perception. And that's not because anyone's discovered somewhere in the brain um, a... Uh, uh, a pacemaker, something that has the relevant timing properties. Okay. So it's not, there's no neurobiological kind of bottom-up reason for endorsing this particular picture. Rather, at least one of the reasons for being interested in this picture is because it seems to provide a simple and unified explanation of the effects of a whole number of interventions 
on our uh, judgments of perceived duration. And what I want to talk about is the effects of four interventions, which I'm going to call the four Fs, namely fear, fever, pharmacology, and flicker. And we've already basically seen the effect of fear, namely that um, uh, fear leads to uh, uh, stimuli to be, uh, uh, the durations to be uh, perceived as longer than uh, non-fear-provoking controls or for periods of time when you're scared to be perceived as lasting longer than periods when you're not. So let's just quickly review the standard findings of the other three Fs. So the standard finding here, which began the <coughs> internal clock uh, uh, theory, really, when, um, at least in this country, a chap called Hoagland started doing experiments on his wife when she had a fever. Uh, and he found that um, increasing, with increases in her body temperature, that she overestimated intervals of time. So time slowed down in that sense for her um, at higher temperatures. Whereas, and in fact, this finding has been replicated in rather more uh, serious experimental conditions and found out to be correct that as you raise someone's body temperature, uh, they tend to overestimate intervals of time and you lower their body temperature to underestimate it. Standard finding from a pharmacological literature is that if you give someone a dopamine agonist, so cocaine, amphetamine, to a lesser extent caffeine, then subjects overestimate intervals of time. And conversely, give someone a dopamine antagonist, so an antipsychotic like haloperidol, for example, underestimate intervals of time. Finally, a kind of standard uh, psychophysical method for modulating perception of duration is to proceed or accompany a stimulus by repetitive stimulation, so visual flicker, <coughs> or a series of auditory clicks. And stimuli that are presented in that way, preceded or accompanied by that kind of stimulation, tend to be overestimated relative to unaccompanied controls. Okay, so there's uh, a one-minute survey of the basic effects. Why do those effects seem to support the uh, internal clock model? Well, uh, and it's simplest because um, they can all be understood as uh, modulations of the rate of the pacemaker. So each of these interventions, what it's doing is changing the rate of the pacemaker, heating someone up, giving them a dopamine agonist, uh, presenting them with repetitive stimulation. It's causing the pacemaker to tick faster and therefore more pulses to be accumulated during the relevant period or event. And so that period or event to be perceived as lasting uh, longer. Now, what I want to just ask is whether there's any possibility that the kind of ideas about uh, mental activity being uh, a measure for us of perceived duration might throw some light on what's going on in these cases. So provide an alternative uh, way of thinking, a mentalistic way of thinking about what's going on in these cases. Well, it might do to the extent that um, there was any evidence that mental activity was modulated by the four Fs in the way it would need to be for it to uh, uh, affect our judgments of perceived duration in the right way. So is there any such evidence? Well, in fact, the standard finding in the uh, literature devoted to studying the effects of body temperature on cognitive function is that raising someone's body temperature increases their alertness and enhances their cognitive function across a whole range of different measures. 
measures working memory, subjective alertness, visual attention, reaction time, and so forth. It really won't surprise you to find out that amphetamines increase alertness and, within limits, enhance cognitive function, boost mental activity. And conversely, antipsychotics, after all, that's why they're antipsychotics, reduce alertness. They blunt cognition, as one psychopharmacology text puts it. Finally, and kind of more intriguingly, a recent study has shown that repetitive stimulation of just the kind that leads subjects to overestimate the durations of events also increases, uh, so decreases response times on arithmetic tasks. So a standard working memory task like an arithmetic task and also other standard working memory tasks. Performance on those tasks is not improved by a white noise control condition. A white noise control condition also has no effect on perceived duration. So at least very superficially, um, there is some evidence that um, the effects which change our perception of duration also modulate mental activity in a way that would be potentially uh, uh, in, in accord with the hypothesis that the reason these interventions alter our perception of time is because we're perceiving events or periods in part relative to how much mental activity is going on, and that's what's being modulated by the four Fs. Okay. So there's a big empirical challenge um, that this suggestion um, brings in its wake, namely, well, how do we actually measure mental activity? Of course, I've just assumed in what I just said that, uh, and it's not natural to assume it, I think, but I have just assumed it, that mental activity is going to correlate with performance on standard cognitive tests, standard working memory tests, mental arithmetic tests, or the kind of thing you get given when you uh, potentially have concu concussion in the hospital, like a digit symbol substitution test, or a vigilance test, and that kind of thing. But of course, there's no you know, straightforward association between those two things. I think, particularly in states of extreme anxiety or mania, there's tons of mental activity going on. And indeed, it's tempting to try and explain what's going on in the manic episodes um, of um, those with uh, bipolar disorder. They experience time distortions in those episodes in terms of the dramatic increase in mental activity. But implausible to think that in those states of extreme anxiety or mania, you're going to do really, really well on working memory, memory tests or tests of cognitive function. Precisely the opposite, probably. But there's certainly no straightforward association. I take it there's a challenge then to try and draw out from subjective reports these objective measures and also perhaps physiological measures too um, the exact relationship between mental activity, which is a construct. Surely we have to acknowledge there is such a thing as non-perceptual mental activity and we're just going to measure it and its relation to duration perception. Okay, the last thing I want to say is just to kind of advertise this project by suggesting the way it might have some explanatory uh, uh, merit over at least a traditional way of thinking about an internal clock picture. It's very common to find people saying that time expansion or subjective temporal <coughs> expansion is adaptive in some way. So discussing an experiment where uh, subjects are wheeled towards a precipice, um, a stairwell in fact, um, on a kind of uh, little contraption and then wheeled away from it, and they have to hold down a button uh, for what they think of as five seconds going towards and going away. 
And the finding is that being wheeled towards the precipice, which take it as the scarier condition, subjects perceive that time as a greater period than, than when going away, when they're relieved, at least to some extent. And discussing that finding, Hancock and Weaver comment, phenomenologically, time slowed down in the stressful precipice condition. This represents an adaptive and appropriate response. And thinking within the internal clock tradition, a similar idea is suggested in a recent paper by uh, Trevolet and Gill. Say, when a subject's confronted with a threatening event, the internal clock runs faster under the influence of dopamine and the preparation for action is quicker. By modifying the perception of time, the internal clock ensures the survival of the organism in urgent situations. So here's the picture they seem to be suggesting. I mean, that threat or fear leads to a spike in dopamine. The internal clock rate shoots up. That's the basis of just subjective temporal expansion. And that's said to lead to the subject being more able to quickly prepare for action. So as one neurophilosophy blog uh, summarized the idea, an illusion of time dilation facilitates an effective escape. Hey, but if you think about it for not very long, that's in fact a really baffling story. Right? So um, if you're uh, a caveman or woman on the, on the veld and you see your saber-toothed tiger suddenly on the horizon and suddenly get scared, detected this threat stimulus, and then everything seems to slow down and the tiger seems to be running more slowly. Um, how does that help you? The tiger isn't running any more slowly, don't have any more time to get away. In fact, if it's, um, it does seem to be running more slowly, you might think, oh, it's only a lame saber-toothed tiger, so I don't have to worry too much about it. It's just puzzling how this story is meant to, to work. I think it's much more easy to see, much easier to see what's going on on the kind of picture that I've been suggesting uh, we should take seriously. Uh, the tiger, the fear stimulus, does lead to a spike in dopamine, no doubt. What that does is speed up our mental activity dramatically. And that is an adaptive response, at least insofar as you don't panic, as your mental activity remains orderly. That does help you prepare more quickly for action. Think more quickly, where do I do? Where do I run? Where do I hide? And so forth. That's also the the basis, the constitutive basis, of time expansion on the proposed account. In that sense, although only in that sense, uh, time expansion is an adaptive response because its basis is an adaptive response to threat. Okay, so that seems to me, um, no doubt there are other ways we could think about what's going on in these situations, but uh, an explanatory, uh, explanatory benefit that we get from this kind of account. Okay, so let me just conclude. So I started off by arguing that uh, the naive view of uh, duration faced a certain threat from the duration distortions encountered in trauma and argued that the view wouldn't be threatened if we didn't perceive duration absolutely, but rather only in a relative sense. And then I suggested that by allowing that we can perceive duration <coughs> in part also relative to our mental activity, we can provide an explanation of time distortions which is consistent with the naive view and merits further empirical investigation. Okay. Thank you for your time.